The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Like double dog dare you! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing you know? All right, joining us now, a Hall of Fame head coach who has been part of NBC's Football Night in America for a decade now. He is the great Tony Dungy. Coach, how are you, pal? Hey, Mike. I'm doing well. Good to be on with you. And here we are the day after the conference championship games, and you've been there before. What's that first morning like after punching your ticket to a Super Bowl? Well, you are probably recovering both teams right now and both coaching staff because you did a lot of celebrating last night and you didn't even think about the other team and going forward and, and all of that. Uh, I know I didn't get to sleep. Um, our, we had the late game and we went out and celebrated. They kept a restaurant open for us in the, in the all night and it was probably four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. I'm just there with friends and family saying, we're going to the Super Bowl. Can you believe that? And then you get uh, back to the office and you start thinking about the whole process. And somebody's coming in telling you, okay, here's the schedule. Here's what we have to do. Here's when we have to be here. This is where the press conferences are. This is all of those things that uh, really are extra and special. And you don't get to, it's probably later on today until you start thinking about game plan and what we're going to have to do to win the game. How do you balance the euphoria of getting to a Super Bowl with the reality that you may end up losing the Super Bowl? <laughs> well, that thought never crosses your mind until it happens. You never think about possibly losing the game. It's, what do we have to do? How do we put this plan together? And uh, I learned from Coach Noel and a, a lot of people that have been through it uh, to try to get that work in and plan just like you would a normal week. And, and hey, we're going to work on our game plan. We're going to get ready. And then you just fine-tune it that second week when they're down in Miami. But uh, if you can get your mind on the other team and on, on all the, the video you have to watch and, and getting ready early, then you block out all, because that's what comes the distractions and people talking about the game and how big a game it is and all of those things. And Kansas City is going to hear they haven't been there ever in 50 years. And, uh, you know, you have to block all that kind of stuff out and just say, how do we prepare for a normal game Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? I want to get a couple quick thoughts from you on the games that were played yesterday. Let's start in the NFC, the late game last night. It was a rematch of a Week 12 Sunday night football game on NBC. I went back and watched that game last week, and I managed to convince myself that it was a play here, a play there, a call here, a call there, from being a much closer game than it was, and the Packers had a chance to win. Of course, the 49ers blew them off the field. What stood out to you from what the 49ers were able to do to the Packers last night? Well, and and again, a lot of times it is like that. You know, Aaron Rodgers throws an interception in the in the first half. Had had a seam route open, a little bit behind them. They are driving the ball and fumble a snap. So you know they they moved the ball, didn't get anything out of it. Gave San Francisco a couple of easy chances. So that made it from maybe a fourteen 
three, 14-7 game to 27 nothing, 28 nothing, and, and it is just a little bit. But when you play a team that can run the ball like that, you can't afford those kind of mistakes. You can't afford to extend drives for them. You've got to get off the field when, when you can, and then you've got to score. Um, I played against that Mike Shanahan zone-blocking running offense, and it can be discouraging if you don't make a couple plays. But by the same token, you could play that game again if you get a third down stop, if you get a turnover, um, you know, and the game can change early, that that can help you. But they just um, they took the life out of Green Bay. They pounded the ball. And then one thing I have to give Kyle Shanahan credit, he realized early on they could not stop the run. And so all of those pass plays that he had practiced and dialed up, he didn't feel the need to get to them. He just said, hey, we know what works. And he didn't get impatient. And, and that's not easy to do, but that, that was a dominant, dominant run game. And the other thing I said earlier today, Coach, he also didn't get tempted to show everyone how smart he is with a play-action pass from the 45-yard line, some quick strike. He just kept doing what worked. If you can't stop it, we'll keep doing it. How demoralizing is it for a defense and for a coaching staff when you just keep getting steamrolled play after play in the running game? We had a game like that, and it reminded me, our Super Bowl year, we went to Jacksonville, and they beat us like that, 345 yards rushing, and just we, we couldn't stop them. And you try everything, and it just doesn't work that day. Now, we played Jacksonville again. You know, we beat them earlier in the year. So it's not like, hey, they could play Green Bay 10 times, and it would be like that. But it was yesterday. And, again, that's where I give Kyle Shanahan credit because you've got all these plays that you designed. Hey, we get to the plus 25. We've got this pass that we know can work, and we've got this shot that we want to take. And he, he refrained from dialing up any of those. He just kept running that ball, and he, he said, you know, if we, run it, we get to second and three, we're going to run it again. If we get to third and four, we're going to run it. They scored on a third and seven running play, I think it was. So um, that is, is a sign of a, a very smart coaching when you don't have to pull everything out that you've worked on, and you do stay with what works and what they have problems with. It's fitting that the Super Bowl is in Miami because the 49ers offense allows Jimmy Garoppolo to be like Bob Greasy, who threw 11 passes in one Super Bowl win and seven in the win over the Vikings. And then you got the other guy in Patrick Mahomes, who is Dan Marino, the other Dolphins Hall of Fame quarterback who's throwing the ball all over the place and looks great. What stood out to you from the early game yesterday, Chiefs taking down the Titans 35-24? You know, I was thinking that same thing because of the 1984 Super Bowl, um, you know, Miami is playing San Francisco, and we played them both. We beat uh, San Francisco early in the year, and we lost to Miami. And Marino was just so dominant, throwing the ball, and it was so tough to stop. And I went in thinking, Miami's going to win this game. They're just so much more explosive. They can score fast. And uh, San Francisco kept the ball from, from Marino all day. And I'm watching Patrick Mahomes, and they get down 10 nothing, and just no panic. And then those quick strikes, and you think, well, they can do that all the time. And they did it these last two weeks. But this San Francisco defense is a little bit different, a little stronger. They've got better pass rushers. They've got better coverage guys. So it, it's going to be a challenge. But I, I love Mahomes. I love the way he plays. And, you know, to have that type of game, 
two weeks in a row coming from behind, not force balls, not throw interceptions, not take chances even when you're down. I think that really speaks to his poise and his maturity. And one thing that stands out to me that I really didn't notice until this morning when we were watching back highlights of the game, Patrick Mahomes is always moving in the pocket, even when he's standing still. And that's got to frustrate pass rushers because you can never really lock onto a target. Even th- There was a play yesterday, Coach, where it felt like he had 10 seconds and he didn't stand there. He's constantly hopping and moving and ready to jump around and moving that target point. And I feel like that's going to be a challenge for the 49ers pass rushers. If they can never really get a beat on him, they may not be able to track him down. And we see how he can throw on the run, throw from any body position, any platform, any arm angle. And I feel like that's something that could be a difference, something the 49ers haven't seen since they played Mahomes in week three of the 2018 regular season. It really could be different because uh, the 49ers, and you watch them play, and Richard Sherman's a master at it. They count on the ball coming out fast. And because of their four rushers, the ball generally does come out fast. And so you're, you're playing routes, you're, you're guessing a little bit, you're anticipating. And then if that ball takes a little more time, and Aaron Rodgers did it a couple of times where he got out of the pocket, scrambled, and, and made some throws. But Mahomes does that so well. The long touchdown pass that it really clinched the game to Sammy Watkins, he started to bolt to his left, and then he reset and got back in the pocket and gave Watkins just enough time to beat man coverage. And, and that's what he does so well. So it, it's going to be a chess match. It's going to be strength against strength. Um, those San Francisco pass rushers, this is going to be a challenge that they haven't faced all that much. But the same token, it's going to be a challenge for Mahomes because this group can get after the passer. And when that chess match plays out, Coach, as the Chiefs have the football, it'll be at some level between offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy of the Chiefs, defensive coordinator Robert Sala of the 49ers, a pair of minority candidates who had interviews this year in the coaching cycle, neither got offers, neither could have been hired until after their season's end, but nobody decided to wait for them like we've seen coaches uh, get waited for in the past as their teams get to the Super Bowl. And that leads me to the main reason I want to talk to you today. You wrote an excellent column that appeared over the weekend on PFT about the importance of evolving the Rooney Rule. And I want to start where the Rooney Rule started a generation ago. Your understanding, Coach, of what it was intended to do when the owners put in place a mechanism requiring every team to interview at least one minority candidate for every head coaching vacancy. Yeah, and and what happened, and it was a a similar situation to what we have now. We had a couple of years, uh, the minority hiring seemed to slow down. There were a couple of guys who uh, seemed to be good candidates, but because of playoffs or whatever, it just didn't seem to be working, and they, uh, the NFL got together and had a committee, and what can we do? And people shouldn't look at that as a negative. The, the, the purpose of the committee was what can we do to help? What can we do to uh, help owners be able to see the field a little clearer, see maybe people that they wouldn't be focused on? And Dan Rooney was a big part of it, and Dan Rooney has been uh, instrumental in a lot of things from labor negotiations to scheduling to doing different things to helping out. And he, you know, suggested that and he suggested it as a way to help the process and get people to slow down the process uh, and 
look other places, look under the, the rocks a little bit and investigate. And that's all it was designed to do. And people kind of look at it now as well as the quota and making people interview uh, certain people. And that, I don't think that was ever Dan's thought. His thought was, well, if you know what you're looking for, if you have a blueprint and you can uh, get more people into consideration, you can look at more people, uh, you're going to end up making a better decision, whether that's hiring a minority coach or not. You're going to get the best person for you, and that's what it's all about. And as I said in that column, that's exactly how he found Mike Tomlin. And um, I remember it because we were preparing for the Super Bowl, and Dan called me, and he said, you know, I've got some really good people on my staff. Bill Cower had just retired, and he had Dick LeBeau and Russ Grimm and Ken Wisenhunt. So he had some quality, quality candidates. But he said, you know, his formula was always looking for younger defensive coaches, good communicators, and he had interviewed this guy by the name of Mike Tomlin. Uh, someone had recommended him to him, and he came away really impressed. Mike was 33 at the time, had only been a defensive coordinator for one year in Minnesota. But they struck it off. Dan talked to him a couple times, did, did a couple of re-interviews, and ended up saying, this is the guy for us. But it was uh, slowing down the process. It was looking outside of his normal situation of who he would look at and trying to investigate the whole uh, landscape. And it ended up being good for him and good for the Steelers and good for the league. So that's what the, the gist of it was. And I don't think now people look at it that way. People are looking at it as it's something I have to do. So I'm going to get it over as quick as I can. And coach, you threw out some of the buzzwords that we hear from people who criticize the rule or opponents of it from quotas to mandatory interviews and the suggestion that you must hire a minority coach. I, I just think that hiding in plain sight is this disparity, regardless of the industry. When the workers are 70 percent plus African-American and the managers are a ridiculously small percentage and they are managing a workforce that a lot of them were once in it. It just, it's something, something's not right here. There's something wrong. And I don't know that we can boil down to what the root cause of it is, but the bottom line is I feel like, and we've had this discussion before owners decide who they're going to hire before they even start the interview process. And the Rooney rule is aimed at, as you said, getting owners to tap the brakes, take a broader view expand their horizons, consider other opportunities and other candidates before making that decision, instead of making the decision before you just go through a perfunctory interview process. Right. And, and that is, uh, I, I think, the biggest thing that could help the whole process. Uh, I know I've talked to owners. I've had people you know, ask me about certain candidates and if I had guys I could recommend. And my first question is always, well, what are you looking for? And oftentimes, the owner doesn't know. Uh, just tell me who's good, who's smart out there. Well, what, what do you want? Do you want an offensive coach? Do you want a defensive coach? Do you want somebody just to coach the quarterbacks, just to call the plays? Do you want a leader? Do you want a younger guy? Do you want an older guy? Do you want someone who's been a head coach before? Those are all things that need to be thought through. And then once you decide, then you can look at the landscape and say, that's what I want. Um, you mentioned Eric Benemy and Robert Sala. You know, everybody's looking for that person to speak into the quarterback and call the plays. But 
these two guys are exceptional leaders. You can tell that from the way their teams play. And, you know, not every successful head coach is the guy who groomed the quarterback. I think Bill Belichick has won a lot of Super Bowls. He didn't come up as a quarterback coach. Pete Carroll has been in, in Super Bowls, done a tremendous job, and they've got productive offenses. Um, but it, it's, it's, we've got to get, I think, past the notion that uh, only certain characteristics, so we, we've got to just coach the quarterback. And, and to me, that's the biggest thing. Slow down the process, find out who the leaders are, and uh, a good leader is going to take you a long way. The title of your column is It's Time to Evolve the Rooney Rule. What specifically do you think the NFL should do at this point to evolve? There's been suggestions about finding ways to enhance the pipeline, specifically on the offensive side of the ball, quarterbacks, coaches, offensive coordinators. What would you recommend at this point that the league adopt for all 32 teams who are filling these key vacancies? I think there's got to be some uh, emphasis in the league office on creating I don't know what you'd call it, rosters, lists of guys for the owners before they get into the process. Right now, some people use search firms. They use headhunters. Uh, there's Internet searches. There's all kinds of things, analytics. And so it's not necessarily the interview process. Uh, and, and I said it, you know, my last job, I didn't have an interview with Jim Mercer. Jim Mercer knew about me. We talked about things on the phone. I think you're right. He had his mind made up that, that I was a guy he wanted before an interview process even started. So I think the, the idea of the Rooney rule, the spirit of what Dan said was good, but I don't think it happens that way now. Uh, very few times does an owner say, hey, I'm going to do six interviews and then I'm going to decide between these six guys. So somehow you've got to get information to them and they've got to get to know some of these guys before the interview process. Doug Peterson's a great example. Uh, Doug Peterson, I did a story for NBC when we had them in the Super Bowl. And five years before the Super Bowl, he's coaching high school ball in Louisiana. But the thing about it, uh, Jeffrey Lurie knew him, knew who he was, knew about the leadership, knew him from Andy Reid. And so he was able to hire him when a lot of people said, you know, oh, this guy doesn't have enough experience. I think Mike Lombardi said, worst prepared or, or, you know, not ready to go, worst qualified, uh, hire in a long time. But the owner knew a little bit more about him than just the resume. And to me, that's what's got to happen if we're going to help the league utilize everybody and and find that the the Robert Salas and Eric Biennemi's can be very good head coaches. The first branch of the Doug Peterson coaching tree is Frank Reich, who was hired by the Colts after the Super Bowl when the Josh McDaniels hire fell through. And that leads me to my next point, Coach. Peter King has suggested, more from the standpoint of fairness to the teams that are playing in the postseason, this process goes so quickly. He suggested delaying the entire hiring cycle, interviews and everything until after the Super Bowl. Do you think something like that would have an incidental benefit in getting the owners to take that broader scope? They've got weeks to map out who all they're going to talk to before they can even begin talking to anyone would a delay until after the Super Bowl maybe enhance the opportunities for minority candidates well I think it would help the entire process 
and I think it would help make better decisions because these owners do now they feel under pressure to get the their first choice to get the guy before someone else um I, I think um the Giants ownership said that that boy we we felt like we were going to lose this guy to I think it was Mississippi State uh but everybody's under the fear that better act fast or I won't get the, the first choice. And if I don't get my first choice, I'll be seen as a failure in this process. And again, that was Dan Rooney's uh, MO. And, you know, I always go back to that. If, if you model yourself after success, you have a chance to be successful. Dan hired three coaches in 50 years. All the coaches were successful. All of them went to the Super Bowl. And he hired them all. He hired Chuck Noll after they lost Super Bowl uh, three, the Baltimore Colts lost Super Bowl three to the New York Jets. He hired Bill Cower late in the process. I was on the, the uh, staff with Bill in Kansas City when he got the job in, in Pittsburgh in 1992. And Bill had three or four meetings with the Rooney family, and he didn't know if he was going to get the job. And it was still well into January before he got hired. And the same thing with Mike Tomlin. We were preparing for the Super Bowl game when Dan called me and said, I, I think I'm going to hire this guy. But he took his time, and he didn't care if people thought, oh, you, you're not getting the number one choice or you're not moving fast enough. So I think slowing it down would help, and it would allow owners to investigate more people and make sure they're making decisions. We had this, the last three hiring cycles, there's 20 changes, two-thirds of the league in the last three years. So we're not doing this right, regardless of who we're hiring. Uh, we're not doing this right when you're having one-year coaches and then they're out, two years and they're out. Uh, obviously, we need to do something to fix it. And some have suggested, Coach, that the fundamental problem here is that there aren't enough minority owners. Shad Khan of the Jaguars, the only minority owner of 32 teams, and that if there was, and it's not like you can just wave a wand and have more minority owners. You're talking about a huge amount of wealth that needs to be accumulated. Teams have to be for sale. But do you attribute in any part the problem to the fact that the demographics among ownership uh, don't reflect maybe the, you know, the demographics among the players, obviously, or at least what the league is trying to get to as it relates to the coaches? I think the ownership really doesn't have an understanding of what can be successful, who can be successful, and they, they don't know people. Uh, again, I, I come back to that. I've talked to some owners who I know have a, uh, a good heart. They want to do the right thing. They want to be successful. They want to win, and they, they don't have an idea of who to hire. They don't have an idea of who's good, and they, they take their – from what they read in the media, what they see on the internet. And, you know, it, it's just, I think it's more information than anything else. And somehow, if we can help that process, um, there was a time when there were no minority players and everybody thought the league was in good shape in 1946 and nobody was concerned. And then Paul Brown said, you know what, we can make this league better. I had better players on my masculine high school team that had African-American players. I had better players at Ohio State when I had minority players. So if I want to win, I can do this a little bit better. And he brought African-American players into the game. Uh, there was a time when there were no African-American quarterbacks. Now we look at Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, and the game is better. 
And it took a while for, for people to understand that Charlie Ward won the Heisman Trophy and didn't get drafted. Charlie Ward would have been Lamar Jackson now. Uh, so we, we have come past that. It's taken time. And I don't think people don't want to have minority coaches or minority quarterbacks or minority anything else, but they don't always know. And getting information, I think, is the biggest help, and that's what the Rooney Rule was supposed to be trying to do. I think we've got to do it in some different ways now. And you make a great point when we look at the turnover. And I was actually surprised only five coaches were fired during and after the 2019 season because I'm so used to almost 25% per year. And at some point, the owners have to realize – we are doing this wrong. Something's not right here if we're turning over. We had a montage last week of the Browns press conferences for the past eight years. Every time they've said they got the right guy for the job. They say yeah. it every other year they get the right guy for the job, and they never get the right guy for the job. And that, that is the issue. And, you know, to me, I, I think they've looked at the wrong formula because just about everybody they've hired has been that, that quarterback whisperer. Somehow we've got to get the quarterback going and um you know it, it's leadership that that's what wins for them you got to find good leaders good leaders can hire people to train the quarterback and and that's what we've got to come up with and, and find out who the leaders are and they can come from offense from defense from any position um yes joe judge in special teams john harbaugh has proven that and I remember when Ozzie Newsom hired John Harbaugh, and he just, that was the guy he wanted. And he felt like he was a lot like Nick Saban. He had a lot of the qualities that Nick had. Ozzie had worked with Nick Saban. He went through a thorough process, and he said, John Harbaugh is the leader that I want. And to me, that that's what we've got to get to. You mentioned that the media has a role in crafting those lists. And, you know, it's easier said than done because when you're in the middle of football season, there's a lot of things that are happening. But, Coach, you've got the voice. I've got the platform. And I think next season we really do need to try to shine a light as early as we can on all the names, regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of anything, all the names that are out there so that the owners, when they're thinking sometime around Halloween, I may have to make a change right around New Year's Day, get the names out there, get them thinking about more guys, get them doing the research. Instead of narrowing down on one or two or three guys and having that process rocket through so quickly. Yep, I I agree. I think that that is critical. And as we talk about guys whose units have done very well and who are making progress, um, I mean, you you saw that with Robert Sala during the, the year, just how well they were playing and just how excited this group was and how much energy they were playing with. And I know I thought, and something is going on there. And, yeah, they've got young talent, and and it's great, but somebody is molding that group. And uh, we do. We need to talk about that more. No question about it. Well, that'll be on the list of things to do when the 2020 season gets here. And it will be here before we know it. But before that, Super Bowl 54, Coach, great insights as always. Appreciate the time, and we'll see you in Miami. Enjoy the next couple of weeks, and let's get ready for a great Super Bowl. Looking forward to it, Mike. I'll see you down there, and I know we're going to do hook up on a couple of things. I'm really looking forward to it. Same here, Coach. Thanks, pal. Safe travels. All right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? 
Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.